Well, hello there, my fellow sleuthkins, and welcome to Rewriting Dad. I'm your co-host, Meg Murphy. And I'm Leslie Bradford Scott. And this is episode three of Rewriting Dad. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, hit pause, go back, listen to episode one and two, or you will be completely lost because that's where we found out what? Well, we find out how I came to discover the 545-page manuscript that my father wrote in prison that I didn't even know about. Yeah. And why we're here today. Just that, how it's totally changed your life. And now mine. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. When we last left off, though, at the end of episode two, you were talking to your mom and you have now brought your whole family in on this project. And it is when it was a family story. It is a family story. And you were having a conversation with your mom and you were discussing some paranormal things and some we're talking about a lot of personal stuff. And then all of a sudden your mom saw something. It spooked her. It spooked you. You knocked the recorder over. This is what happened. There he is. Who? There he is on the wood. Oh, sh. What did she see? This is so funny. So, I really think that she saw the ghost. Yes. That she's been talking about. I'm fully, absolutely. And you should have seen her face. It was just so like shocked. Oh, my God. There it is. And. I swing around and there's our wood pile, our giant wood pile. And the wood stove is going full force right, right next to it. And on top of the wood pile, there's this tiny little, tiny little mouse. And we had been hunting for this mouse because we knew we had one. Right. Because there was some, there was some cheese messing out of the fridge. Right. Yeah. That and little <laughs> extra pellets around the house. <laughs> so we knew we had a mouse. Right. And Oftentimes in the wood pile is obviously you're bringing wood in all the time. We probably bought, brought in a little baby mouse with right. it. And he's just sitting there on top of the wood pile looking at my mom and I. <laughs> so you freaked out. First of all, you thought it was a ghost. And your mom is not, just to clarify again, like your mom's not someone who's into the paranormal. This is not a, she's not someone who's like that normally. No. So for her to be even talking about this, it's like, wow, this is means something to her. And you should have seen her with this mouse. Like in true my mom form. She's like, okay, honey, I'm coming to get you. I'm going to take you outside now. Just don't be scared. Don't be a frightened little mousy. And she goes over and picks this thing up with her bare hands. And it waited for her? And it, it just like Pied Piper right into her hands. And she's like, I've got you. I've got you. Now, I'm afraid you're going to have to go out in the cold now. But you see that wood pile? That'll keep you. You go back there and you'll stay warm until spring. Your mom's a mouse whisperer. She is a mouse She's an animal whisperer. Unless that was a spirit somehow in the mouse. Maybe. What do you think, audience? Let us know. We want to (laughs) hear. While we're on the topic of paranormal activity, we have had some creepy things happen that have sort of been a lot of signs pointing towards you telling this story. And a lot of things have been quite, uh, doors have been opening in ways that are really interesting, including we had talked about in one of the earlier episodes, um, you and your daughter decided to stop at the house that you had, one of the houses you sort of grown up in. And the people were kind and invited you in and go back to episode two. They were kind and invited you in. Go back to episode two to hear that. You had an update from those people, the farm owners. I did. So I recently received an email from the woman who lives there. And this is what it says. It's so strange. I just wanted to tell you that I had a dream about your dad last night. And so did my stepson, Rob, who is super sensitive as well. There was money in the walls here. Could you imagine? Now, that's crazy that the two of us would dream about him on the same night. What do you think, Meg? Well, she says your dad must be here lots or something, because why would he be in both of our dreams? Do you think that he is? When you were there, did you feel that presence at all? I don't. Do you know what? I must have, because when she said, you know, there was someone here the other day, she talks about the experience of him walking back Mm -hmm. and forth. I didn't stop to think, oh, that could have been anybody. Mm -hmm. If there was indeed a ghost, it could have been anybody. Like this house is, I don't know, turn of the century anyway. Right. So... But immediately in my head, I could see my dad. So, but am I doing, is that me consciously doing that? Or is that some sort of unconscious reaction? Like maybe it is him. 
Right. And then, of course, my mom having those dreams about him at the same time yeah. and, and seeing apparitions at the same time. And I don't know. And at the same time as you were the, starting to read the manuscript is coming back into your life. All of these kind of they're all signs in my in my mind. And I think it's also weird. And when I read this email, I thought it was really creepy because to find money in the walls, your dad was so connected to such strange businesses and many nefarious people. And he dealt in cash. Um, most of his businesses were in cash. And so I feel a little bit like, is there actually money hidden in the walls? Now, here's the really strange part of this email. Those people, we did not tell them who my father was. Right. We didn't tell him why we were there. They were racing out the door. They had no, she's the one that brought up the mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never confirmed or denied that. Yeah. We actually never talked about it. No, you just had lived in the house. You said this was the house I grew up in. Yeah. And then when she says, well, I saw this ghost and I'm like, oh, that's my dad. Yeah. That just blurted out. But there was no other, there were no other conversations. They literally had to run out the door. So why would she have these dreams about money in the wall? Her and her, is it stepson? Yeah, her I think. stepson. Yeah. Right. And what does that mean? Are, is that a literal thing? Is there really money in the walls? I or is there some kind of figure? Maybe it's the story. Maybe there's money in the walls of the story. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we're, going, we're on a quest, though. We're going to find out. interesting because I think your dad, I don't know. I think there could be. He's kind of one of those people that I would not be surprised if you found, you know, you peeled off some layers of plaster and there was a whole bunch of jewels and money. Like, I would not be surprised. That yeah. would never surprise me. Do you know, there must be a lot of that around the world. There must be a lot of houses with money in the walls. Yes. And people die and then it never gets found, don't you think? I have a friend who her parents were hoarders. And um, when they cleaned out the house, it was just stacks and stacks and stacks in of stuff in every room. But there were old Kleenex boxes. Like, every Kleenex box they'd ever used was stuffed with stuff in it. Like, as little treasure boxes. And there was rolled up, crunched cash in a ton of them. And so they wow. had to go through everything in the house, like the TLC show of hoarders. They had to go through everything. And they pulled out like $40,000 worth of cash from little in dollar bills. To That's bills, incredible. But um, you couldn't just go in. She was like, I just wanted to go in with a dumpster and clean it all yeah. out. And I couldn't because I'm like, why don't we throw away money? Oh, man. Yeah. I don't That's know. We so might come across some cash from Maybe we will. Now, we also talked about in our last episode, we talked about uh, our connection through my engagement ring that I returned. And I have to apologize here and now to you, Leslie, because I made you do so much extra work. I had spoken really openly about my relationship, which later upon listening to it, I thought, you know, it's not entirely fair for me to say all of that publicly. And I was feeling my neck about it. Uh I just don't want bad karma on me. And so I had to ask Leslie to edit all of the potentially not so great things I might have said. <laughs> um, there was quite a bit, Meg. And let me tell you what, by the end of it, I went from not being an audio editor to being, I'm a pretty pro editor. <laughs> you are. You are. I can piece together a, a half of a word. <laughs> I know. You're so good now. Um, and I really appreciate you doing that for me, which is is an interesting thing when you're telling stories because you have, these are real people and they're real yes. lives and they're real people. When the mics turn off, these people continue to live and, you know, it's a delicate orbit. subject. I mean, I'm it experiencing is. that right now with my family is like what to expose, what not to expose, who owns the story? Yeah. Like who owns the right? right like who owns the right to tell a story? Mm-hmm. You know, my story involves a lot of people as do as does everyone's mm-hmm. right. So where's the line? And how do you determine where the line is where you protect? In this case, we're protecting identities through you know, fake, fake names. Right. Mm. But I talked to my family. I I called my cousins, my aunts, and they didn't want anything to do with this. They're like, don't dredge it up. It's put to bed. Why do you feel the need to dredge this up? But what did you say to them when they asked you that? I said, well, it's my story and it, it haunts me to this day. This is my whole childhood and it's being turned upside down and everything that I know about myself is, you know, my childhood is untrue. So, it's important. I just can't let that go. Mm-hmm. So I'll protect, I'll protect them, but I have to investigate my own story. I have to know what went on in my life. And what would your dad say? I mean, this is his story. What would he feel about you doing this? Uh, well, I think he put us through so much hell. He doesn't have a right to say right. about it. Right. That's like, fair. Too bad, dad. <laughs> and he was, well, this is my judgment, but he, I think he was pretty narcissistic. He might enjoy it. Yeah, he might he might have thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. 
I wonder we'll what you would know. disagree with, though. But your mom, she is being supportive, even though she's confused by it. It's really interesting. She doesn't want me talking about it. And then, okay, I'll go down to the basement. And she's literally been on like an archaeological dig in her basement looking for every single paper. And she kept everything. Right. So she's been on this like really interesting quest. And I think it's inspired inspired in her the desire to find the truth as well. Right. And uh, even though she doesn't want to talk about it. Right. But she was willing to do about a dozen interviews with me. But let's not talk about it either. Right. <laughs> she's like conflicted, but she's definitely been inspired to right. get to the bottom of things for sure. I think that's really neat. And I think that, yeah, and everyone approaches their stories differently and from a different perspective. And you said something really interesting to me. And part of the reason that you were doing this was you said, I don't trust my own memory now. All my childhood memories are in question. What Absolutely. Yeah. Because in the process of this, you listeners are going to find out there are incidents that were significant mm -hmm. that there are four different memories of exactly the same incident. And I, I remember it like it's a movie in my head, but I completely question maybe I'm wrong and cannot even be right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And my mother, you know, she's equally committed to her memories. And, but when you piece together the truth, it's like, I look at a lot of it and think, you know what? I could have been wrong about this. My right. whole life. I could have been wrong about this. So take me back to when you found this memoir and you were, well, your mom brought it to you. You shoved it away for a little while. You brought it back out. You brought in some wood from the wood pile and a little mouse, <laughs> a little mouse. and you started to read. What did you think you would find? Well, first, let me talk about what my story was before the book. Right. So my life has been built on the story that my father was a convicted drug dealer, that he was possibly involved in organized crime. I knew there were some arms in there dealing somewhere, but had no idea what that meant. Mm -hmm. And there was some armed robbery and accusations. That's it. That's what I knew. That's what I thought I knew for sure. That was the legacy from which you came. Right. Okay. And I remember, you know, as a kid, always having that feeling like, I remember talking to my father and saying, dad, I don't know what you're involved in, but you need to stop. And why don't you just live a normal life? Like, How old would you have been when you asked him to stop? Maybe 12, 13. Okay. And actually, I left home when I was 15 mm. because he and I were disagreeing on some things. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go take care of myself then. Right. And, and you didn't have any proof that he was doing anything illegal. You just had a feeling that something was wrong. Right. Right. Okay. It just didn't... Things that happened in my home didn't add up to me and it just felt really nefarious. Right. And, you know, there was a gun in every single planter in our house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I didn't grow up like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do grow up like that, but, you know, it's kind of maybe not normal. Right. And there was just a lot of comings of goings of people who seemed, you know, they were all like my uncle. But I like, say, yeah. Is everyone uncle we, someone? Yeah. But we weren't like Cuban and there was a lot of Cuban uncles when we were in Florida. So there was a lot of stuff. So that was my, that was my life was built on that story. Right. And then I read the manuscript and my dad in it is divulging that he was an informant for the CIA and INS and the DEA, and all of these stories about what happened in Florida after we moved there, when he was arrested in Canada, the people that he was talking about, I knew them. And I'm like, oh my God, that's who that was? Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. So the, after I put the book down, I thought to myself, maybe my dad really wasn't in organized crime. Maybe he was innocent, but he did because of his big mouth, because he did, he had a big mouth because of his, this personality of always having to like go to the edge right. and getting involved with people. He maybe shouldn't be involved in stirring the pot, right? Mm -hmm. With politics. He got into politics and he was stirring things up in politics and maybe he just pissed the wrong people off and did get on the wrong side of the law. Mm-hmm through those political connections. And maybe that's how he had to become an informant. And he was forced into it. But it was really because of his stupidity and his big mouth. Maybe he really didn't do all those other things. Right. And so so that was that was now like, okay, what is true? Right. And what is not true? And I cannot 
let this go. I have got to get to the bottom of it. Yes. Well, I mean, there's so much shame that is attached to all of that as well. And then, and at the same time of trying to sort of run away from the story you don't want to be attached to, but also wanting to exonerate, he's your dad, regardless. People's dads are their dads and you want your dad to be a hero. You do. Every kid wants to look up to their father. Yes. Right. And there were, you know, many good qualities about my dad. Mm -hmm. He was a really interesting character and an interesting personality. And people loved him. Like he would go into a room and light up the room and people would flock to him. Mm. He was just that personality. And so it was really important. And I had so much shame my whole life. I even changed my name, as we talked about before, because I was embarrassed by my name because he was in the news. You know, he was arrested when I was a kid. Um, children weren't allowed to play with me right. because of my dad. So, you know, my life is, is attached to a lot of shame because of my father and my mother, too. And as my mother and I go through this together and she discovers more, we talk a lot about her shame and she feels so responsible. And I don't even know why for his story and for his failures. And she wants to get to the truth. Hmm. It's so interesting how one person can, the ripple effects of one person's life and how they can either be a positive ripple effect or a negative one that people will spend years after they're gone still trying to sift through. I'm 54 years old hmm. and I'm still thinking about my childhood. That's crazy. Yeah, it's It's been tethered to me my entire life. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I'm, I'm privileged to be going on this journey with you. So Meg, why don't we start at chapter one and two of my dad's manuscript? Because when I was researching it, I found out something that blew me away about history. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't know this either. And then I felt embarrassed that I and, and like I should apologize to my high school history teachers that maybe I didn't pay enough attention. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I started, I was so embarrassed that I didn't know this about <laughs> history, about World War II history, that I actually, because I I read a lot of fiction based in World War II. Right. I don't know okay. why I'm fascinated with it, but I do. I read a lot of books about time. it. It was a heightened time. It was a really interesting time. And so if anybody should have known th about this, right. it would have been me. And I've been all over Europe. You know, I visited these places and I just feel somewhat knowledgeable about the subject. Until. And um, <laughs> until as I'm doing the research on immigration yep. and why the Italians came to Canada, as did my dad's family back then, I found out that the Italians <laughs> invaded France and actually occupied Southern France. In fact, they occupied Nice, Corsica and Provence. And they called it, are you ready for this? Yes. The Kingdom of Italy. The Kingdom of Italy. The Kingdom oh, of Italy. The Kingdom of Italy. And that was in, on June 10th, 1940. And the funny part is, or the interesting part is, is that they showed up with like thousands of troops. Mm. And they're like, we are here to occupy your country. But they came really nicely. They came really nicely, very politely. We're here to occupy. And the the Vichy army, the yeah. French army, they said, um, yeah, sure, come on in. Right. Yeah. But that was because 1940, Germany was on the verge of taking over. Like France was about to surrender, right? That's right. So they kind of didn't have much choice either. Yeah, they're like... Would you like it? Would you like an? Would you like an espresso? Yeah. <laughs> yes, come occupy. No, that's not even the right accent. It works. Right? No, it works. <laughs> Why is it my dad was French and I yeah. cannot? <laughs> I can't. I was a German or something. But yeah, they just like it's just amazing to me. They really didn't have a choice. Yeah. And then did you find out anything interesting when you were doing your? Well, research? I just thought that was neat because your dad. I'm fascinated by your dad's perception of his own nationality because his family and his background were Italian. He doesn't have a lot of great things to say about his father. He thought his father, you know, he, he talked about his father being an alcoholic and quite an angry fella. So they moved from uh, Italy into France, grew up in Paris, loved Paris, considered himself a Frenchman, but his first language originally was Italian. And as you've said it in the past as well, that he would use whichever nationality served him best at the time. So I kind of think it's just a really interesting thing that how how history actually also informed your dad's upbringing because it was right around that time that he was born. That's true. Mm. Yes. And the other thing that I thought was interesting about my dad's time in France as a child, 
that he says, he claims that he was actually working for Charles de Gaulle when he was about 12 years old. Yeah, this is, well, your dad, anyway, he was super interesting, but also he started in sort of, <laughs> I'll call it criminal with like, you know, little quotes, air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, activity as a child because he and his brother, Tony, were good friends and they would be little bookies on the schoolyard. And he had, they had all kinds of, you know, he was already doing this, like he did horse ra- racing, betting on, um, and he couldn't make the payments. So he would, you know, fake sick to skip school right. <laughs> and then decided after he got punched out once doing that when he was 12, he um, decided to give it up. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to know with your dad as well, what is true. And uh, although I feel like he's one of those people that most of the things he says have at least some element of truth to them. They might have been blown out of proportion or become way more epic in his telling of it. But there's some element of he's always at the right or wrong place at the right or wrong the time. Wrong time. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know, but he was uh, this is part of on page 85. He talks about being an adult and going back with your mom and some friends to France. And he says he went back to this hotel and it was at the La Perouse, a hotel I had once worked at. I'd been a bellboy there at the age of 13. I looked real cute. I was told by my sister. I got fired, though. I was the personal bellboy for Charles de Gaulle, who, as we know, became president of the French Republic. The reason I got fired was that a major magazine asked questions from the hotel staff about de Gaulle's private life. We'd been told by the owners of the hotel not to say anything to the press, but an article came out revealing all of de Gaulle's habits. I got fired because management thought I was the one who'd given the press the information. I was the only patsy management could find. Ah, Meg, you know, do you know what I think? What do you think? I kind of think my dad maybe did. Yes! So, yes! <laughs> I mean, he was on the playground doing like, wasn't he like eight years old when he started being a bookie? Yes! Like, how does even an eight-year-old know how to be a bookie? He just saw any opportunity to make money for a bit of a scheme, but also he liked the fun of that. Yeah. He, li- he seemed to like the... He was a bit of an adrenaline junkie from a young age. So sure he would, 12 years old, and I can be a part of the action in this. So what do you think? Do you think he actually... I feel like he probably did. Work for Charles de Gaulle? Like, <laughs> the really? personal bellboy? Can you believe that? Like, it's just so strange. It is so strange. But all of the things that happen in your dad's life, I can't not believe it. He's kind of like a criminal forest gump, shall we say. Yes! Yes, he is! <laughs> Yes, he is. Just always at the right place at the right time or wrong time. It's true. So, Meg, this episode is brought to you by moi. That's French for me. <laughs> so you did learn a lot from me. I did. I did learn. <laughs> Walton Wood Farm. At Walton Wood Farm, we make clean, sustainable, personal care products packaged as gifts for yourself or someone you care about. And today we're going to discuss our solid colognes. I love your solid colognes. Yeah. Do, yes. have you, have you, do you personally use them? My beau uses, well, he's been addicted to gentlemen for a long time. Then I bought him musician because I thought it might inspire him to take up an instrument. Oh. Um, but then recently <laughs> you got me hooked on date night. And it even says on there, it says um, on the packaging, it says you won't even get out of the driveway. <laughs> Have and you? Have you got another driveway? <laughs> just barely. <laughs> just barely. I gave it to him and he put it on. He got in the car one night. I was picking him up and he said, is it working? <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> it's good. I like it. It's my new favorite. So the reason I came up with the solid colognes is my daughters were like, hey, why don't you make something for men? Because there's nothing cool for our boyfriends. So I went to the drugstore and I'm looking at the wall of glass bottles that are fragrance. And I'm like, why are they not made really for men? Glass, they're fuffy. They're like frilly. Yeah. They break. They leak. You put it on and it's like you put way Way too too much much on. Way too much, yeah. And then you stink people out of the elevator. It's disgusting. And they're not made to travel. Yeah, and I thought, right. how can, and they're made out of alcohol and water. Like that's the primary ingredient. So I thought, how can I make something like that's really like a wax and a butter and you know, beautiful and moisturizing. So there's no alcohol, no water. You just take your thumbnail, drag it across the surface of the wax, put it anywhere on your body. You can never put too much we on. We won't judge you for where you put it. We will not judge so you don't have to worry about that. It's subtle. It's intimate. It is subtle. And it's moisturizing. You can put it on your cracked skin, your cracked elbows, wherever you want. It is it is that subtle too because it's um you don't notice it until you're really close to the person and then it's intriguing. But it's not that overpowering smell of someone just walked in a room. No, I love them. It's intimate. And today we're in a very increasingly fragrant, sensitive environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, And you can throw it in your carry-on luggage or your gym and, bag. And yeah, I was going to say your gym bag. TSA is <laughs> not taking it away. That's true. Smart yeah. thinking. So if you would like to check it out, waltonwoodfarm.com. 
And while you're at waltonwoodfarm.com, please check out the retail locator to see if there's a store near you. We'd love it if you'd support local. So back to France for just a moment. Uh, your dad grew up, he was born in 1940. He grew up in Paris, emigrated to Canada in 1958. But he, at some point in there, he moved away from home. His parents sort of shipped him off for a little while when he was a child. Talk to me about that. So that's what they did back then. During the war, parents sent their small children off like into the country to live like at farms mm-hmm. with anybody who would take them away from you know the occupation and danger. So my dad and his sister were sent to live uh, in the Pyrenees with a family that they didn't know. These were just strangers volunteering their homes. It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing mm-hmm. when you think about what people will do during times of you know war. I remember learning that about Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. She was sent away. Uh, she was 10 and she was sent away to be, to live with another family because her Jewish parents were eventually sent to a concentration camp and she was sent to live with another family and eventually shipped to the States. But it's she amazing. Lost everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I didn't know that. I bet about your her. dad lived with her too. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> She was probably living in the basement, yeah. <laughs> hiding. Yeah. So he was shipped off to the Pyrenees Mountains and lived in a very small town. I can't remember the name of it, but I found out. And uh, with his sister and was being looked after by this um, husband and wife on a sheep farm. Hmm. And he must have had that must be how he developed a love for the farm that he had. Right. Because he really had such an attachment that when he was in I think his 60s, he and my stepmom went to the Pyrenees to find that village and to find that house. And they did. And the lady was like in her 90s and she was still alive. And she remembered him? And she remembered him. I'm not going to say his name, but Claudio, Claudio. And the mayor of the town, they had like a celebration and a parade for him. Oh my God. As a son coming home. It wow. was incredible. Yeah. And his room, much like my room at our farm, was exactly the same with exactly the same furniture on it all these years, years later. later. Yeah, it's incredible. That's amazing. And I bet it must have had that impact on him, which subsequently had an impact on you because you have spent a lot of time trying to find your way back to farm life. Again. And now I live on a farm. Yeah. With a company dedicated on a farm. A dedicated <laughs> To farm it, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how that kind Full of gets circle. passed down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was in 1958. It was in November of 1958 when your dad arrived in Canada. And immigration really kicked up after the war, of, of course, because there was a shortage of labor and there was a big push for people to come. Some were sponsored by the government, some were sponsored by individual companies. And your dad was brought over. He'd finished um, how much education? I think he only had grade six. Right. And then he dropped out or got kicked out, one or the other. So his whole family decided to come here for work. That's right. And he was not happy about that. He hated the idea yes, he did. of leaving France. He says, Mama, je ne veux pas aller à Canada. I don't want to go. People there live in teepees and igloos. It's cold uh, in that godforsaken country. And when it does get warm for a short while in the summer, it gets hot as hell with mosquitoes the size of my bloody arm. Je ne viens pas. Yep, that sounds like my dad. <laughs> He also says when he arrived in small town, Ontario, not really speaking any English, right? No, he didn't speak any English. I could not make myself like that bleak looking country. In comparison to home, the people looked miserable. You could spot, you could not spot a happy looking face among these Canadians, not where we lived. If you smiled and said good morning to them, they seemed to be stuck for an answer. God damn Canadians. Do you know, it's funny because he hated Canada until about, let's see, he died when he was about 73. And I'm going to say he probably hated Canada until he was about 62. Right. (laughs) And then suddenly he loved Canada. Right. Which is also interesting because he had spent time in jail here. And later in life, it's surprising that he never moved back if he loved it so much. I know. Or even earlier in life, before he went to jail, why didn't he just run? And we're going to find out he had key opportunities to move back and to avoid prison, but he didn't take them, which was really odd to me. I don't understand it at all. But we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot to be said about the the kind of person who immigrates. Mm-hmm. Back then, I mean, transportation and travel was not what it is today. No. It was really difficult difficult to immigrate to another country. Mm-hmm. So there must be some sort of DNA of the adventurer spirit 
in the person who does take that leap yeah. to move to a country for better for a better life. Yeah. And that DNA must get sort of passed down. Yeah. Generationally. And I'm also wondering about like the inherited trauma. Mm-hmm. Does that get passed down? Yeah, I always find that a very interesting subject of inherited trauma and how, well, for you personally, how do you feel your dad was obviously quite a risk taker and he was an adventurer. How do you think that that has impacted you? And are you the same way? I am. I'm a risk taker. I've been a risk taker my whole life. Mm -hmm. I'm an adventurer. I will do crazy. I I did when I was younger, really crazy things, but I'm still a risk taker. Mm -hmm. I just take better risks, more calculated, more intelligent risks, legal risks, legal risks. (laughs) I have not landed in jail and I should never. (laughs) Yeah. You took the good parts of your dad's adventuresome nature and then you just tried to do it on the right side of the law. But that inherited trauma, I can tell you to this day, I can be in a shopping mall and pick something up in a store and I have to hold it in a way that it doesn't look like I'm stealing it. Even though as an adult, as a kid, you know, my brother and I did some shenanigans, but I have, I never have never been dishonest as an adult. I've always paid my taxes to the dime. I've done everything honestly, but I, I still have that in me. Like I feel like somebody's going to arrest me for stealing by accident. Right. So you think that is, is that because you're worried about your dad all the time or that you would somehow be associated with your dad or? I just think it's in there. It's in my makeup. Mm-hmm. You know, f- I don't know if it's a genetic thing, like the inherited DNA, or I don't know the inherited trauma rather through my DNA, or I don't know if it's just I'm a product of my childhood, just seeing my dad lose our houses so many times and go to jail and all the, you know, the news stories. And is that why, like basically guilt by association? Right. You, it's interesting because right now we're doing, you know, we're sleuthing ourselves to try to figure this out, but you spent a lot of your childhood, adolescence, in your early 20s trying to sleuth out your dad's life too and go, there's something in here. I'm going to catch him somewhere in this. That's true. So there must, that that idea for you of, I got to get to the bottom of this. Something's not right. Something's not right. Has been with you since childhood. That's right. I've had a thirst and a hunger to get to the truth. Hmm. My whole life is about finding and understanding the truth. Is this process already helping you find some of that? Just even asking the questions? Yes, I think so. It's given me an opportunity to maybe somehow find peace with my childhood and my dad, no matter what I find out, to maybe make sense of my life in a bit more meaningful way Mm -hmm. and put it to bed once and for all. Yeah. What's that lie? I remember a friend of mine had gone to rehab And one of the first lines they taught was, our secrets make us sick. I thought that was so interesting. Wow. Never heard that before. That's a good one though. Yeah. And it's true. Our secrets make us sick. What you don't, what you run from continues to control you. Continues to haunt you. Mm -hmm. Maybe those, maybe those are the ghosts. The money in the wall. The money in the walls. <laughs> Maybe the secrets are the ghosts. <laughs> they always haunt you. It's true. Until you turn on the light. We've been asking you, our loyal Sleuthkin listeners, for your family secrets to share with us things that you didn't know until some point in your life, and now you want to put your secret somewhere. And we have our very first one to share with you. This is Elena. How are you doing? I'm good. You wrote to us that you had quite a normal upbringing, that you were the only child of a stay-at-home mom, and your dad worked shifts mm-hmm. at a local factory. You had a normal small-town life. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a happy, normal childhood. We went to church every Sunday and, um, the priest would always come to our house for supper. Uh, I was a Girl Scout and my mom volunteered at school. And then my dad and I would play card games on Saturday afternoons and catch bugs in the backyard and study them. I, I wanted for nothing really. That's pretty idyllic. Yeah. Was but great. your father died young. Is that right? Well, he had just retired at age about 55 and was gone within a few months. Uh, It was cancer and it was devastating. I was about 25 years old at the time. Mm, That's hard. That's young. That's how old I was when my dad died. I'm so sorry. And when you and your mom, you got around to sorting out your father's belongings, you found something. Now, this is why you wrote in. You found something Mm -hmm. shocking. Yeah. um, We found... um, a wooden box hidden in his workshop. 
It had a lot of Nazi memorabilia in it, photos of Hitler, uh, Josef Goebbels, and all kinds of swastikas, including uh, a Nazi flag. Uh, there were articles about white supremacy, and uh, needless to say, it was highly upsetting. That must have been crazy for you. Like, did you not? Did you know any of that about your dad? Maybe the box was left by someone else, by a previous owner, or something. No. Well, it's what we thought at first. We couldn't really make sense of what we saw because my dad was such a gentle, soft-spoken man. He was always the quiet one in the room, you know. Mm. And then uh, we discovered the biggest shock of all when we were selling his car. We took out the floor mats to clean the carpet underneath, and there were swastikas underneath the mat. What? Mm-hmm. And. Because dad was always the one that cleaned the car, mom and I never had any reason to look underneath the mats. And then it really hit me. Where was he going the first Thursday night of each month? Probably not playing poker like we thought. In fact, I actually did some digging around and then I found out that there was a vibrant white supremacist community in our area. I had absolutely no idea. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. This must mm-hmm. have been absolutely devastating for you. Well, I was crushed. I mean, at this point, I didn't know who my father was. It's like we didn't even know him. And I questioned moving forward every memory, every piece of advice he ever gave me. And most of all, I questioned my love. Like, how could I love a man who was filled with that kind of hate? I didn't even, I didn't even know what was happening really. And I, I even questioned my mother because how could she not know this about her husband? Yeah. This is so interesting because it's it's really similar to Leslie's story too, of kind of finding something out that rewrites all your childhood memories. It's very strange. It throws your whole life in a question. Mm -hmm. Have you shared this story with other people or are you kind of keeping it to yourself? No, I, I just haven't been able to. I've kept it bottled up for about 20 years now. And uh, I have no brothers or sisters. And I also don't have any cousins because both of my parents were were also only children. And I'm too ashamed to tell my husband uh, or my friends as well. We were talking about that. Leslie was talking about shame and how that feels to carry carry that with you through your life. So Mm -hmm. um, how does it feel to unload it here and give it to us? Absolutely. It's... I mean, it's challenging and it feels really weird, but I, I heard your call for stories and I jumped, I jumped at it. I knew it was a sign. I feel like this negativity has been bottled up in me for so long and it's like I get to click a release valve and, and let it, let it go. At least let some of it go. And I don't know, I may have inherited some DNA, but I'm not my father. No, you're not. No. And I get, I get to dump out some of this burden and let it go here. So thank you. And I guess you know what that feels like. Yes, we do. And I'm so grateful for you sharing your story, Elena. And I know that other listeners will be able to relate. And I hope you are able to um, make peace with some of that. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me the space to do that and for having me on the show. So that is totally not when she started. Mm -hmm. And I first heard this, like, that is not what I thought when she said the priest comes to dinner, oh. <laughs> came to dinner all yeah. the time. Yeah, no, I thought it was going somewhere else. Totally. Yeah. Floored me. This That's not the family secret. Floored me. Like, how did he keep that a secret their whole lives? I, mm-hmm. how, how did the wife not know this? That would have blown my mind. Yeah. But that's also interesting for you to ask that knowing your mom didn't know so much going on with your dad. Very true. I think people get really good at keeping their lies, keeping their secrets. And it's interesting because if you are a white supremacist, you would be on some level very proud of your beliefs. So to actually have to put them underground and lie to your own family might, I think that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of someone who's like rah, rah, rah. Right. um, But at the same time, kind of going underground with it. Well, they do wear, you know, those white cloaks. So (laughs) there is that. But, you know, it also made me think about um, why, if he knew he was dying. Mm -hmm. So you you go to the doctor, you told you're going to die, you have cancer. You might have a week, you might have a month. Usually you have a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. So why didn't he get rid of that stuff? 
Why didn't he remove it from under the floor mats? Why didn't he throw away the box? Did he want them to know in the end when he didn't have to face the truth of who he was? Mm. Like, wouldn't you, if you had something really secret like that, wouldn't you get rid of it before your kids saw it? I think so. But even keeping it in the first place, it's like people that have affairs and keep the text messages. You know, why, why wouldn't you have deleted that? Because on some level, you're like, oh, it makes me feel the things I needed to feel. That's an excellent point. Well, thank you so much, Elena, for sharing that yeah. story with us. It really means a lot. And, uh, and you too can share your story. Just hit the contact for- form at rewritingdad.ca. And we'd love to keep your secret. It'll be safe with us. We'll keep you anonymous. And uh, as Meg always says, you can hang it somewhere. Hang it with us. Hang it with us. So now it's 1958. Your dad arrives in Canada. He doesn't speak any English. He has a grade six education. He gets a job as a laborer. And within the next year, he was already married to your mom and they were expecting their first child. That is a lot of change. That's a lot of change in a year. But, you know, back then people did things really young and really fast, didn't they? Yeah. You know, 18, 19, if you were like 21 and you weren't married, oh, yeah, you, you were like a total spinster. It's like, what's wrong with you? My was 21 and I found her when she got married and I found her um, marriage certificate and it had her occupation as spinster. Oh, no, it did not. <laughs> oh, my God. That's <laughs> it did horrific. not. It does. Oh, my God. So that's horrific. Is that like a paid position or <laughs> like, do you get, yeah, do you get money from the government for, benefits, for being as uh, like benefits? Yeah. Vacation. She's a spinster. Oh, my oh, God. That's awful. At 21. 21. What happens when you're 31? Yeah. I don't even know what they'd say about me. 41. I guess that's old <laughs> no maid. 31, old, old maid. maid. <laughs> yeah. You're just the Do you think they put aunt. that on your, on your certificate? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> At least on my tombstone. God. <laughs> but it was really neat. Your dad met your mom, totally different cultures. Your mom's background was Eastern European. Right. And it should be highlighted that back then you did not marry outside of your, your faith, your, <laughs> your race, faith, your, your yeah, ethnicity, cultural. nothing. Mm-hmm. No, Italians married Italians, mm-hmm. French married French, Eastern Europeans married. Yeah. And Baptists did not marry Protestants. Right. You know, it was a really interesting time. And your dad's parents did not like your mom. Just they liked, maybe, maybe they would have liked her, but based on her ethnicity. My grandfather, especially, he did not even go to the wedding. Mm-hmm. He cursed her, called her a whore in Italian, of course. Mm-hmm. Putana, I think that's the, I think that's the word. Is for it? whore in Italian? Putana? Sounds nicer. And um, he was furious that my dad would not marry an Italian. She was, um, they called her the Polacaria, which he kept suggesting she was polish but she actually wasn't she was from her mother was from austria and they were ukrainian okay but he kept insisting that she was polish right (laughs) and in his eyes if you were polish you were really bad right so if you're gonna be racist just a generic wash just generic yeah yeah eastern european it's all in there it's It's all all you're all polish yeah but he adored your mom he adored her and he he says as well this is on page 15 I met what was to be my future wife at a dance hall in a church. I fell in love with her almost immediately. Tony, my new friend, and I took the girls home that night. Susan, my girl, was at the dance with a girlfriend of hers. Tony, quote, parked and scored, but I didn't even try. I had too much respect for this lady. Besides, I didn't think she was the type. And she was not the type, actually. No. I think it was like four months before they had any intimate relationships. And no, we're not going to go into detail about that because right. that you. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> what child? Just picture it, Leslie. No. No, we will not do that. But my mom, interestingly enough, when she was doing her archaeological dig in the basement, right. found pictures of her boyfriends before she dated my dad. Oh, interesting. And she had forgotten that she'd even had them. No way. And one of them was a drummer. Oh. Yeah. That would have been cool. I could have been the daughter, daughter of a drummer. <laughs> That would have been neat. Oh, might have been an easier life. It could have been. Maybe. Drummers on the road, not so much. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) I think it's really neat, though, because throughout the book and your your parents' relationship, we're going to talk about it a bit more, but still being respectful to your mom as well. But it's a really interesting relationship because there is a lot of love. Your dad speaks through the book of adoring her, but I think it was far more complicated than that, than he writes it. And your mom, and when you read this, you know, your mom, there's many points where I thought, why isn't she doing something or why doesn't she leave him or why is she following or why did she believe him? But your mom was so young and so innocent and so pure, really. She was and she was very pure, but she also came from a very abusive household. Mm -hmm. Her 
it, and it was violent. So her father actually killed himself and she saw that like she was, she went into the bathroom and saw him lying there and he, how did he do it? I think he cut his wrists. Oh my God. And I mean, it was horrible and he was an alcoholic and then she had a series of stepfathers. I think she had two stepfathers and the last one was very abusive, threw her out of the house when she was 16. Mm. And then her only brother Billy died when he was 21 of Hodgkin's disease. And my grandmother, actually, my mom told me this the other day when she found the picture of that boyfriend. Mm. So she was with that boyfriend, the drummer. They were at the gravesite burying her brother. And my grandmother turned to her and said, it should have been you. And I said, why do you think she thought that? And she says, well, back then, you know, the boy was everything. Right. And it was far, I mean, girls were just, you know, like second citizens. So she'd lost her only son and she was devastated. And then, so after she got together with the new stepfather, my mom got kicked out of the street when she was 16. I mean, back then there was, wasn't, there weren't very many resources for people like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So she got a little place to live. She ate like hot dogs every day to survive. And she went hungry a lot. But then she managed to get herself into nursing school. Hmm. And then, of course, she met my dad and they got together. But um, yeah, it was a really difficult life. Mm -hmm. So she was used to being unloved and she was used to to abuse. And it must have felt pretty great that for all my father's flaws, he really did show her a lot of love and affection. And he ended up doing very well financially. So he was able to provide a life for her that was comfortable in a worldly sense. And she does say something else that's really neat. Telling, really. Anything he decided was not my choice. I did it because I'm a puppy dog. I follow. How many of us are puppies and or have been puppies in our life and have followed. I mean, I can think of, I've been fascinated my entire life, for example, by female celebrities Mm. who are absolutely gorgeous, incredibly talented, filthy, stinking rich, want for nothing, can afford housekeepers and nannies and anything they want and stay yet in abusive relationships Mm -hmm. or relationships that are negative. Why? Mm-hmm. Why are they puppies? You know, we just have to think about someone like Whitney Houston mm-hmm. or Halle Berry or, Halle Berry or is it Rihanna? Oh, well, yeah. With Chris Brown. Yeah. Right. Chris Brown. Why do we do that? Yeah. It's so much more complicated. You're right. It so is. and this is, you know, we're talking about modern society. This was back in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. So if we can't get it right now in 2020, you know, what What happened back then? It must have been a lot easier to stay in an abusive relationship. Yeah. And we you didn't have any resources. Lots of stories, too, that your mom, I, like, and if you're not the kind of person who is someone who would normally commit crime, to live with someone like that, you wouldn't, I wouldn't notice it. Like, I wouldn't actually think that normally of someone that you must have done this illegal thing. Like, it would be very shocking to me if someone in my life had done something like your dad was doing, involved in. I think your mom must have justified so many things and he justified it to her. He and he was himself and he was a smooth talker. Yeah. You know, he's really charming. Yeah. And it's the old like frog boiling in the pot, right? Yeah. You don't notice. But I feel like a frog would actually jump out. <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's a hot tub. Why would you? <laughs> Another important person in your father's life. Um, we just spoke about him a little bit before. He was his original bookie, his brother, Tony. Uh, he was loved Tony, but was protective of Tony. But something happened between the two gentlemen and Tony died in a way that was a bit of a family secret as well. My entire childhood, I always wanted to know what happened to my uncle Tony, because I think I was about five when he died. Mm -hmm. And I'm that kind of person, like when I have a question in my head, it'll stay with me forever unless it gets solved. That's why we're doing this, right? And your parents kept telling you, stop asking questions, stop asking questions. Yeah. And the overwhelming, like the prevalent story was because he was really young. I think he was like 32 or 30. Mm -hmm. The prevalent story about my uncle Tony was that it was the hand of God. 
And it's right. like, what kind of God does this? Like, just what kind of hand is this that God has that he just like swats you down in the prime of your life? And and I, I would ask, I would ask my aunt, uh, my dad, my mother. And it was like, well, oh, I don't know. Nobody really knows. He just kind of fell asleep and he didn't wake up or it's a mystery, some kind of mysterious disease. Nobody ever could figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm reading the book, I actually get to the truth, which shocked me. It, I couldn't believe that this was hidden from me my whole life. But even more so, I couldn't believe my dad was telling this story. I think he needed to put it somewhere. He needed it off his chest. He was living with some guilt. Your dad was a car, owned a car dealership at this point, and he hired Tony as a salesman. And he describes Tony as being a little bit slow, maybe not not a great salesman. He should go back to roofing that he there were a couple of times through the book that he mentions that he might not have been the smartest fella. Well, actually, I I just want to. So my mom the other day found my brother's report cards. So and I read them for the first time in my life. So my brother had learning disabilities. I knew that they didn't know that back then mm-hmm. in the 1970s. And they yeah, didn't know it. I have learning disabilities. Those were not things they diagnosed back then. Right. But when I'm reading his report cards, it is very clear to me that he had ADHD. Right. And in one note that my dad writes back to the teacher, the teacher's talking about how Brad just will not settle down. He just will not listen to instructions, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And it's going on and on. And my dad writes back a note and says, we find that if you humiliate him in public, that helps to get him to behave. And I thought, oh, my God. Your dad wrote that back to my, the teacher. Wrote to the teacher. As like a piece of advice. Advice. If you humiliate, if my you son, humiliate okay. him in public, you'll get him in order. Right. And then I think my Uncle Tony, mm-hmm. what they said about my, because I always heard that about my Uncle Tony, that he was not very smart and uh, simple minded. And I thought, well, he probably had mm-hmm. learning disabilities just like us. Mm-hmm. And they obviously were passed down genetically, but nobody knew what that was. They just categorized you as stupid. But he could have been a very bright guy. Right. But he was a roofer and he fell off a roof and was badly injured. I think he was in the hospital for about a year. And I didn't even know that part of the story. And then so when he did recover, my dad hired him at the car dealership, as you read, and he wasn't doing very well there. Mm-hmm. And so what happened? Well, I think it's about time to end this episode. (gasps) Oh, you're evil. (laughs) And because we're just out of time, Meg. So we're going to have to cover this. We'll pick it up next time and we'll find out what the truth is about how my uncle Tony died. Because now I do know the truth. So that's a wrap for today. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Rewriting Dad and sign up for The Secret Vault at rewritingdad.ca, where you will get behind-the-scenes bonus materials, videos, and inside secrets. And we'll be giving away a lot of Walton Wood Farm products on our social media channels. And if you review and share our episodes on your favorite podcast app, just shoot us a note on the contact form at rewritingdad.ca and let us know that you did that and you'll get double entries for our Walton Wood Farm giveaways. What do you think about that, Meg? Oh, you're going to get yourself some nice cologne. You won't get out of the driveway. <laughs> and you might get some winners a bitch. Winner is a bitch. It is. <laughs> the only thing that's not a bitch about winter is your hand lotion that saves my hands. Well, I'm glad we could help. And... Uh, send your story, your family secret. Get it off your chest. It's time. Secrets make us sick. Ain't nobody got time to be sick. You might be on the show. Be sure to subscribe to our channels on your favorite podcast app, and we would really appreciate a review and a share. It would mean oh so much to us. Please. A lot to us. And until next time, stay mysterious AF.